I had such a great conversation today with Michelle Portlock. Michelle is a wife and mother of four children. Two of Michelle's children are autistic, and these diagnoses led Michelle to pursue a master's degree in behavior therapy. After completing that master's degree, she started her own company called Navigating the Spectrum. She also has a podcast, and I was on that podcast, and we had such a nice time chatting there too. She helps to guide and educate parents by teaching useful and evidence-based tools and techniques to use within their own homes. She also works with autistic adults by teaching social skills and working on everyday tools and techniques used in navigating life. We talked today about autism being a family experience And she talks about acceptance as an action word. How can we as professionals be accepting of our clients? And what feeling do our clients have when we are with them? She shares some really great advice from her journey into being an autism professional and also sitting on the other side of the IEP table as a parent. So if you are working with autistic individuals or if you have loved ones who have autism, this is such a great listen. Let's get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 22 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I'm here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. And today we have with us Michelle Portlock. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. It's so nice to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I met Michelle just recently, but I feel like we've become fast friends. I was on her podcast, Navigating the Spectrum, and I really enjoyed sharing information about communication and autism and about being a speech therapist in a BCBA. And Michelle has a really great story that she's going to share with us today. So let's just get into it. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey into the autism world? Absolutely. I'd love to. So I am a wife and a mother of four children, and two of my children are autistic. And actually, my youngest, who is five years old, she is on the wait list for testing. And, you know, you'd think that because I've gone through autism and raising children, my oldest who is autistic is 18. And so you'd think that I would know exactly what I'm looking for. But sometimes even as a mom, just a mom, you second guess. So she's on the wait list for testing and she definitely has sensory processing disorder. There's no question there. (laughs) But we'll we'll where that leads. So yeah. And I'm sure those wait lists are hard with COVID. Has that made it more complicated? And yes, it pushed us back an extra six months or so. So be there in the summertime, we'll be testing and then she'll start kindergarten, you know, in the fall. And so I feel like as long as I go in armed with information and a better understanding of what her exact needs are, that we'll be okay. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. I'm actually, that's why I like you so much. My son is starting kindergarten this year too. (laughs) So we are going to have that in common as well. It's a big deal when your kids start kindergarten. I'm just Mm -hmm. like, oh my goodness, I can't believe uh, this is really happening. And she's your youngest, right? So you'll have all your kids in school. How fun. Okay. So, you know, I love autism outreach and this idea of having all different types of people on the podcast. That was really my vision when I created it. And so we've had 
had, you know, individuals with autism and um, people who have autistic children, as well as professionals in the field. And you're kind of both, right? And I'm excited for you to share that with us. So can you tell us a little bit more about your story? I, I do think it's interesting. And I didn't know that I knew you had two autistic children, but I didn't know one was your older child and one was your youngest child. So I'm sure that even just the changes in services or the changes in the autism world have been different for you to navigate too. I'm sure that dealing with your first child was probably a totally different experience than potentially with your younger child too. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe your son when he was diagnosed? And I know you went back to school and some of those things that I think would be really inspiring for people to hear about. Sure, I would love to. So my oldest, as I mentioned before, she's 18 and she's autistic. And then I have a 13-year-old son who is also autistic. Autistic. And then, of course, my five year old who it is the, it's unknown. <laughs> oh, okay. It's unknown. So you have two children who are diagnosed, who are autistic, and then your yep. third is on the waiting list. Okay. That I didn't yep. know. Okay. Yep. Okay. The son in between my right after my oldest, and he's neurotypical and he just gets to be a part of this beautiful world that we are living in. Yeah. <laughs> so. He's an amazing kid. So my experience is, I don't know if I, if I would call it unique, but it was unique for me because when I first had Brielle, she was, she is my oldest and she's okay if I talk about her. I've asked her permission and she granted yeah. it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> she doesn't say what she doesn't mean. Yeah. <laughs> no, I hear yeah, 18 girl. Yeah. I'm reverting back to thinking when I was that mm-hmm. age, I had yep. some opi- strong opinions about things. So yep. that's nice of that's, her to be able to share. I know. So essentially from when she was very little, I started seeing traits and characteristics that felt unique because I was I was spending time with other new moms and their little ones, their little babies. And I noticed that Brielle was crying more often. And when she would what at the time I thought it was you'd call it a tantrum, but now I've learned, no, those are meltdowns. Those are full full blown meltdowns and they are different. And, but I was a new mom. I didn't know. I thought she was just having a tantrum. And so for me, the sad thing is, is because I didn't know what we were looking at. I just thought I had a really, really stubborn child (laughs) and maybe a little obstinate. And I, you know, but at some point I asked the pediatrician, I said, look, she's, she's not sleeping great. She goes 90 miles an hour all day long. She's picking up words that are really uncommon. Her first word was calculator. And I know I should have known then. (laughs) Right. When did she acquire her first word? Because I know I was actually just shopping at Target and got stopped by a neighbor, actually, and they were concerned about their child's development. And, you know, really by one, kids should have, you know, their first word. And it's funny to look back and think about what your kids' first words were, especially when you have multiple children. Everybody's is so mm-hmm. different. So when did she acquire that first word? Because that's a hard word to say. It is a hard word to say. She definitely acquired it before she was one year old. So she, and she would say ball dog calculator. <laughs> and um, so I guess what I want to share is it took us a long time to get my daughter her official diagnosis. And the reason behind that is because, first of all, I think it can be a little trickier to diagnose girls than, than boys. And I also feel like when 
children require, when autistic individuals require less support, it can be a little trickier to pin down what's going on. And we had so many sensory issues and won't wear shoes, wouldn't wear socks, refused jeans. And I just kept thinking, this must be a me problem as a mom. I must be doing something wrong here. And, you know, it was somewhat validating to get these diagnoses for my daughter and my son. They got it at the same time, but Brielle was 14 and my son was nine. And both of them came with really skilled um, speech and ability to communicate. And so that is why one of the main reasons why their diagnosis didn't come until later, because speech can be a real height indicator. And also their um, academic milestones, those can be indicators. And they just didn't have those indicators, but they had so many other struggles and things that we were really, really struggling with at home. And my daughter was initially diagnosed with clinical anxiety. And although I knew that was correct, I had that mom sense, that gut feeling that there is something more going on here. And we really need to get to the bottom of this so that I can help them get the resources that they really need. So once they received their diagnosis, I went through another mourning period, not because I was sad that they were autistic. I actually, like I said, felt somewhat validated saying, okay, this is why it's been challenging. But I felt sadness because you constantly hear early intervention is key. And I felt like we had missed the mark. I had missed the mark. And so I started putting, I started putting my kids in extra therapies that they weren't already in. And what I realized was we've been doing this all along. (laughs) We've known that there was something extra or additional that my children were struggling or that with or that they may have required. And so, for instance, my daughter by that time had done cognitive behavioral therapy and just regular counseling and therapy. We'd been seeing a psychiatrist. We had tried neurofeedback also, which is for a whole other day to talk about neurofeedback. <laughs> And my son had done, although he was a gifted speaker, he did have some letter struggles as far as his verbalizations. And so he had done speech therapy. We had done so many therapies. Mm-hmm. So what I did realize is that, you know what, we not we may not have fully understood the why behind it, but we were doing the work all along. And so the gift that I received from these diagnoses was that I was able to really dive in and research what is autism? What does that mean? What does it look like? And I don't mean in terms of looking at someone and knowing they have autism. I mean, what do I see in terms of behaviors? How can I help? And so that really spurred me towards beginning a master's program, which I completed a year ago. And that was in behavior therapy because I just felt like I really want to understand why my children behave in these particular ways. And so I went that route and it just opened all kinds of doors for me. I was so fascinated by what I was learning. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, just to go back to the fact of autism in girls, I know that when I started doing presentations just in my own career about autism, which I don't even know, maybe it was 10 years ago, like now just, you know, like at a district level, there was always that statistic. And I think it's still floating out there that, you know, (laughs) autism is diagnosed in boys four to one or something like that. I used to include that in my talk. 
talks. And we actually had a great speaker, Andy Put did, a, she's a speech therapist, and she did a talk for us in the fall. And it was called Autism in Girls. And it was all about how girls are often not diagnosed until they're older. And I follow a lot of um, different autistic individuals on things like Instagram and TikTok who have either been diagnosed or maybe they were diagnosed with something different when they were younger. And then maybe they've been self-diagnosed or they've been diagnosed really later in life. Like I'm talking 30 years old. Like I I sit on a conference board and um, one of the individuals is an autistic female. And she was just talking about how she didn't get diagnosed until she was about 30 years old and just how hard that was to maybe know that something, maybe you needed a little bit more support, but you just weren't sure. So I know that's something that people are definitely talking about a lot in the field, because I think historically, we've always just thought about autism in boys, because, you know, that was a statistic. And now it's like, oh, well, maybe that's really not true, because maybe (laughs) we're just missing all of these children that probably need more support and things like that. So... Mm That's great to share. I'm I'm super intrigued about. So you did? Did you have an undergraduate degree before? Then you went you you because you got a master's, right? So yes, I did. I had my bachelor's degree was in um, education. So I had taught elementary school for a couple of years before I took a long sabbatical to raise my children. (laughs) So I and I always had wanted to go back. I knew I wanted to earn a master's degree at some point, but for years, I just didn't know what in. And then as soon as the passion was behind behind my desire to become a little more, to just get a further education, I said, this is what I want to do because this will help my family. This will help my children. And then once I got into the program, what I discovered was this is really valuable information and I really would like to share it with other parents. And that really sparked my business, which is navigating the spectrum. And I just find great satisfaction in working with parents who are struggling raising their children, raising their autistic children and knowing knowing which way to go and knowing what comes next. That is so tricky and it really can take an emotional toll on us as parents. And so I feel this pull to be there to help and to guide and support. Although I will say I'm still in it myself. So sometimes we're learning together. I have raised an autistic daughter. I'm in the middle of raising an autistic son and potentially another autistic daughter. (laughs) So I just, I just kind of hit all of those markers. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that a lot of parents struggle with, there's so many choices out there for therapy. Mm-hmm. And and actually, I don't even know your thoughts on, you know, what therapies you found to be helpful for your kids. But I just know because I spend an inordinate amount of time on social media because of my businesses that uh-huh. there's a lot of strong opinions about yeah. what types of therapies. So I follow a lot of, you know, moms who have autistic children on mm-hmm. social media, either TikTok or Instagram, and they might share about a certain therapy that they think is very helpful. Mm -hmm. And then their comments get flooded with a lot of really mean stuff. But that's Mm -hmm. just, I guess, a part of social media. But it's got to be really hard to navigate that. So it's really nice that you offer that. So tell me a little bit more about your business, because I don't really know what different types of things do you help parents with? And is it mostly people, you're in Colorado, right? Is it mostly people in Colorado or do people find you online through your podcast and things? 
both. If you live in Colorado, we can meet in person and that works out really beautifully. And if you live in another state, I I have clients in multiple states right now. And so we meet via Zoom or sometimes um, FaceTime. And we discuss various autism behaviors that they are seeing or struggles that they might be having. Because let's be honest, autism may be an individual's diagnosis, but it is a family experience. It's experienced by all members of the family. And so what that means is we need to address the family as a whole and not just that child or individual who has an autism diagnosis. And so I feel like when I go into a home, we talk about various aspects of what may be going on in their life. Like how is their communication with their spouse? It's just, it starts there. Right. And, and maybe you're not, maybe you don't have a spouse and you're flying solo. And I've been there before and that can be tricky, but it can be done. And we talk about ways it can be done. What can you do? What can you create in your own home? What does that environment look like? And how do we make it successful for not only your child, but for you as the parent? There's so many tools, resources, techniques available that I really, I had really just scratched the surface before I jumped into this program, this behavior therapy program that I completed. And let me just piggyback on what you were saying about some of the available therapies, because yes, I received my master's in behavior therapy, and that can be one of those therapies that parents either love, 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 or strongly disagree with. And here's what I'll say about that. ABA in general has, it kind of, there is a history there. Mm -hmm. There is a history and not all of it's pretty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think what we understand now is adjustments have been made over the years and things have changed over the years. And also the way that behavior therapy is presented to our children, that has also changed. There's a beautiful form of behavior therapy, in my opinion, just called floor time. And you're following the therapist is really following the lead of the child. And there isn't so much, it's not so science heavy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, it's more play. It's learning through play. And, but then there's data collecting going on so that parents can say, well, what do you see? How can you show me that there are maybe some appropriate behavior changes? And we can say, well, look, here's the data that we've collected through play. So it can be done in really healthy ways Mm -hmm. that aren't so-called damaging to your child because there are some autistic adults who feel like ABA was a manipulative practice for them. And while I feel so sad about that, I do. I feel sad that those individuals feel that way. I also want to say that most of those people I've spoken with are in their late teens, early 20s, maybe even in their early 30s. And we have come so far in that field. Yeah, that's a good point because we do, and I have had a couple individuals with autism on just talking about, you know, being autistic, kind of navigating, you know, having a career and, you know, things like that um, Mm -hmm. and their thoughts on some of those things. But I I do think it's good to bring those up. And I I think what's so important for any intervention that a parent Mm -hmm. decides, I'm a BCBA, so obviously I believe in the science of ABA, but I think Mm -hmm. you need to feel really comfortable with what's going on in therapy. And I'm always really shocked 
shocked still to this day when somebody, and it happens daily where I might get a nasty comment about ABA or something like that. And because I think if you looked at my Instagram and all the things that I'm kind of sharing, that Mm -hmm. I'm sharing really good information that is really play-based, that is, you know, taking Mm -hmm. data, is following the child's lead. And I've had a lot of different speech therapists who are also BCBAs on the podcast. Um, Liz Willis talks about play and then Braxton Baker um, is going to be on too. And they really think that you should really embed work on communication skills within more the natural environment. So within functional routines, following the child's lead, we're obviously taking data, you know, and making treatment Mm -hmm. decisions based on data collection. So it really, with the field of ABA growing, is really going to be dependent upon your provider. So I think it's just bring those things up because as a parent and just me having my own kids, anytime my son needed like occupational therapy. So, you know, I was in on the sessions. Like I have friends that are OTs. I can bounce ideas Mm -hmm. off of them. That's what I think is so nice about your business is that while I know that I provide a lot of service to parents and families, I don't always have that time to talk with parents. Even if I email them after every session, Sometimes mm-hmm. parents really need a sounding board and somebody to say like, well, this is what we're working on in OT or this is what we're doing in speech. This mm-hmm. is the behavior plan. What do you think of that? Because even if you have good ongoing communication with your providers, you may not have enough time to dialogue or just use somebody to vent slash act as a sounding board. So it sounds like you're really helping people kind of wrap their head around those things and kind of coach them almost through the process. I am. Essentially, you could call me an autism consultant. (laughs) That's, That's essentially what my title would be because... I, that is exactly what I do. You nailed it. I, I am talking to parents who feel like they're the therapies that their child is receiving. Their child is really integrated and the therapists are saying, now here's what you do with the child. And they're giving them great information, but then they go home and they have to process this information. What does that actually look like in my home? And how do we make that work? And, um, and also feelings of overwhelm. And a lot of parents will say, I'm doing all these therapies. What can I cut? And I never straight out say, well, cut this or cut that. <laughs> we, we go through a process of what's working well and what, what may not be working well. And so it's just, it's just everyone's experience is individual. And because we are individual, we are unique. And so we have to approach it in that, with that thought process in mind. Yes, I love that. And I've always loved that quote. If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. I really love that because every student I work with is very, very different, even though some students do have some similar characteristics. Obviously, that's how we get diagnosed with autism. Every single individual is different. And just taking that time, I always talk about it as building therapeutic rapport, but getting to know our clients, no matter if they're, you know, a little bit older, a little bit younger, because everybody is going to have their own strengths. And they're also Mm going to have those areas where, you know, we need support and things like that. So it sounds like you're doing such great work. The one other, a couple other things I wanted to talk to you about while I have you on the podcast here is, so I am a speech therapist in the schools three days a week, and then two days a week, I have my own private practice, ABA speech. And so I think that kind of dialogue with parents 
can be a little tricky for professionals based on the setting you work in. Sometimes in private practice, you obviously get to see the parent or a guardian or, you know, a nanny or somebody that's dropping off at therapy. And so it's easier to kind of have that ongoing communication. I feel like there's some more barriers when you work in a school. You have to work a little bit harder to have that ongoing communication. But what advice can you give speech therapists or other professionals about communication with parents? What are some things that maybe in the past have made you feel like this is really good communication. I really appreciate this. I feel in the loop about what's going on in therapy. Can you share some of that with us today? I sure can. And I appreciate you asking that question. So I mentioned before that my son had speech therapy when he was younger. And one of the things that I appreciated that his speech therapist provided was after every lesson that he had, she would give me, physically hand me the tools and say, here is exactly what I want you to do. This is exactly what it looks like. And she would demonstrate it for me. And then she gave me a physical sheet of paper where I could check the box and say, yes, we did this today. And so I could see if I was following through on my end as a parent, because as we know, as autism professionals, it is a team effort. And so you can do speech all day long in your office with this child, but it only really begins to click when they access it in the real world as well. And so I appreciated the information that I went away with as the parent. And so that would be my number one. Number, the second thing that I really appreciate is when speech pathologists speak at my level <laughs> because I don't have a degree in speech pathology. And, and because, because of what I've studied and learned, I do understand most things now, but I didn't then. And so sometimes I would have things explained to me by other speech pathologists. And I would, I would say, hold on, dial it back. <laughs> I need you to explain that in a way that is not, not speech pathology lingo and um, break it down to my everyday life. What does that mean in my world, in my life, in the life of my child? And so those are the two things that I would say are most helpful for me. And I would even take it so far as you and I were talking about how how a speech language pathologist can interact within an IEP meeting. We had kind of touched on that. And, and my advice would be similar to what I just mentioned, which is keep the language understandable because we really are there to help the child, which means the parent has to be on board. And in order to get the parent on board, you need to communicate in the most effective way possible, which means cut the professional lingo out. And I don't want to say dummy it down because the parents are can be so highly intelligent themselves, but they're just not well versed in speech language pathology. And so that would be that would be my two cents on how to approach the IEP experience. I think that's great feedback because sometimes we don't realize that we're using these jargon type terms. Mm -hmm. And actually in the BCBA ethical code, it is, there's a whole code item about not using jargon. So, yeah. and I do a lot of little videos about that and I teach this ethics class right now, but we talk about not using jargon because 
We don't ever want anybody on the team, let alone parents, to leave mm-hmm. that IEP meeting feeling confused because I think that's a really bad way to mm-hmm. end things and or to get off on the wrong foot with a parent. And mm-hmm. then I think sometimes what happens is, and I don't know if you do any of this for parents, but you know, sometimes we'll have advocates in meetings, which is very common to have a parent yeah. advocate in meetings, which I don't think is a bad thing. But I think that as professionals, we get really kind of nervous and sweaty because we're thinking, (laughs) oh no, like, did I do something wrong? This parent Mm -hmm. doesn't like the services that we're providing. But I think that sometimes it's really just nice for parents to have another set of eyes that maybe know Mm -hmm. more about the public school system, especially to Mm -hmm. kind of help navigate that because it can be hard. So have you ever been an advocate in a meeting or ever had an advocate that helped you in meetings before you felt more comfortable? So I have not physically gone to the meetings, but I have supported parents preparing for the meetings. And so I guess my thought is, you know, it's like, let me give you an example. When you go to a doctor's office and maybe you have some some type of ailment and they start explaining it to you, you really, they start saying, this is what you have. And it's all medical language. You don't really know how to treat the ailment yet. And so that's why I think WebMD has become (laughs) maybe a not so good resource. But I I don't know. I think we go away as individuals saying, what just happened? What does that even mean? And as they're explaining information, we're not able to absorb everything because it's new. And so bringing someone with you essentially is a second brain that sits there with you to say, oh, you know what? Remember, they also said A, B, and C. And here's what that means. So they're able to be kind of that. Like I just said, that second brain for the parent Mm -hmm. to help not only maybe ease that parent's nerves, but also to provide information that they may have missed or didn't fully understand. And so I think that's the beauty of the advocate. And they may have been well-versed in this world for many years, and they may be able to discuss items and topics that the parent wasn't even aware could become part of their child's plan. They, right. they didn't know, oh, I can add that? Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, I would love that. That would be amazing for my child. Right. And so that's the beauty of the advocate. And so I think at the end of the day, clear communication on the side of all of the professionals involved and the parent. And the parent should be able to say, I'm uncomfortable with this because, mm-hmm. and discuss that. And, and that needs to be an open discussion. And I think that is what helps to make these IEP meetings more effective and much more successful. That's a good thought. I think the one thing that we do, and I've just always done, and I don't know, I don't think everybody does this, but I've just always kind of operated this way is that we always send home a draft like Mm -hmm. a week in advance. And I've worked different places, Texas, up here in Ohio. But Mm -hmm. I think that week in advance is really nice because it's a lot of information for parents. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a parent who's had a child on an IEP for years and years, it's still a lot Mm -hmm. of information. And oftentimes the students that I see who are autistic usually have a home team. So I might be the school-based therapist, but they might be accessing private speech therapy. They might be accessing a BCBA in the home running program 
programming or helping out with supporting in the home environment. And so oftentimes parents want to give it a look. They want to show it to the team. And I Mm -hmm. really welcome that feedback. I don't think that professionals should feel defeated because somebody else is giving them feedback about the IEP. I always want to feel like clinically, yes, this is my area of expertise and these are my recommendations, but this is a dynamic document and we Mm -hmm. are giving it to you ahead of time so that I think that that is really helpful for parents to know that your input is very important to us as the team. I think Mm -hmm. that sometimes parents may feel like they don't get as much of a say or, you know, and not every school district is going to be as collaborative. And I'm sure a lot of parents don't have as many wonderful experiences to share. And everybody kind of has those stories that where things didn't go as well. But Mm -hmm. I think that ongoing communication um, is important. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. So are there, is there anything that you think that people should not say? Like, I know that we had Carrie Ebert on (laughs) and she has an autistic son and you know, she said red flags, like let's not call it red flags for autism because that makes it seem like autism is something um, that is a bad thing, right? Instead of your brain just working differently. So oh. if, you, if you don't have anything, that's fine. But, you know, do you have anything that anybody has shared with you or said in a meeting that kind of hurts your heart a little bit that would uh, be helpful for us to know out here in the speech therapy world to potentially not say to a parent? Oh, so I love, love, love that question. I would say I have not experienced anything like that as of yet, but what I have experienced is the creation of a 504 with very specific goals and then the teachers not abiding by those goals and then discuss it. When I've gone in to discuss, it's been, it can sometimes be the teacher feels on the defense. Mm -hmm. And so And so I guess what I would say to professionals is don't, don't take offense. The, the parent is really trying to negotiate their child's needs. Mm -hmm. That's really what they're trying to do. And sometimes that's overwhelming to parents and it can be so emotional. And so the reason why I say this is because when you come in with these emotions, sometimes sharing the emotion can shift the emotion towards the professional Mm -hmm. as well. So as the professional, just do your darn best (laughs) to this level and not take offense to what this parent is experiencing. I don't oftentimes feel like it's about the teacher in a personal way. Mm -hmm. It really is just about accessing the needed resources. That's a good idea. Yeah. Because I I think too, you know, believe it or not, I've had some parents that don't, are not nice to me. You know, I've been doing this 20 years. So I have had some disagreements with people, but I always try to frame it with this parent is really just trying to advocate for their child. And they obviously feel very passionately about that. And so now having three kids of my own, you know, I I don't know what you're experiencing having autistic children, but I do know what it's like to be a parent. So Mm -hmm. I always really frame it like that. And I obviously, you know, over 20 years have um, practiced being extremely neutral in situations that can be extremely contentious. And I think when you're working in special ed, you're just going to be in those situations because even if you have ongoing communication, you're not always going to see eye to eye. Uh, but I do think that's the power of the team is that I've had some parents who, you know, definitely are analyzing every single word on the IEP 
But at the mm-hmm. end of the IEP, you know, before I've ha- gotten thank you cards, like, thank you so much for putting all of this energy into the IEP, which I would do for any student, right? Not just sure. a student who is maybe a high profile um, client. But I think that that kind of ongoing communication, if you set it up that way and don't mm-hmm. take it as a personal, you know, you don't want to try to be defensive. And I always just try to frame it of this parent is trying to get right, just like you said, the supports for their children. So mm-hmm. I think that's I would, I would add to that. You're just you just made me uh, think of something. I, what I would say is I've been on both ends. I've been on the parent end and I've been on the professional end. And I think sometimes parents come in gunning looking for a solution immediately. And it's okay for the professional to say, let's, can you give me a chance? Mm -hmm. Can you give this a shot? Mm -hmm. Can you give it time? And if so, can you give me and give them a time frame? Parents Mm -hmm. sometimes (laughs) need what their child was, what their child may need, which is I need this time frame to complete this goal. The like hopefully, and so you can you know that's a way to approach it too. Hey, I know you're not seeing the progress that you hope to see yet, but I believe in this, and here's why I believe in this. Here are some evidence based resources. This is why I feel like it's worthy of your child's time, and I think just explaining that to parents can help diffuse some situations that may occur. Yeah, that's great. Love that. Such a great conversation today, Michelle. Let's, I know I always kind of wrap up the podcast with this one last question. So what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about supporting learners with autism? Hmm. Well, I guess I would say I'm, I'm kind of in autism acceptance mode because we're recording this right around autism acceptance <laughs> awareness time. Right. Yeah. So I think if you're in the professional world, you're very aware if you're if you're working with many autistic children, I think you become very aware of what autism is. I think the very next step is to become accepting of who these individuals are. And to me, acceptance is an action word. It's what are you going to do? to show that acceptance and to show that you you're in it for them and what does that look like and what does that mean because sometimes we get worn out it can be exhausting it's a lot of work as a parent and a professional and so i think that it would be wise to take a step back and saying how am i showing up for these children what does this look like what feeling do they get when they are with me, what what am I? What are they perceiving in me? Because oh, our kids are smart. They are smart little cookies, and they pick up on everything. So maybe part of autism acceptance is understanding where you're at in that process and what that looks like. I love that so much. Yes, that feeling. How does the student feel when they're with you? That's really powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Oh my goodness, what great information today. I hope that you all enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional and I'll see you next time. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? 
Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.